Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. And uh, we're not a new podcast anymore. This is episode 100 and something of the podcast. I never remember the episode numbers, but anyway, we're in the triple digits now. But for those of you uh, just tuning in for the first time, basically uh, what we do here in the podcast is I invite on uh, an author to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published, something we think you guys out there would like to hear a conversation about. And then hopefully at the end of the podcast or even in the middle of the podcast, if you uh, you know get your druthers about you, you can go ahead and uh, give the book a purchase yourself and give it a read. So yeah, so if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Mr. Marion L. Tupi. And uh, Mr. Tupi is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity at the Cato Institute, uh, the editor of humanprogress.org, and the co-author of the Simon Abundance Index. He specializes in globalization and global well-being and the politics and economics of Europe and Southern Africa. His articles have been published in uh, many places, like the Financial Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, Foreign Policy, Newsweek, and The Spectator among many others. And he is also the co-author, along with Ronald Bailey, of 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person, sh- Smart Person Should Know, and many others you will find interesting, uh, for which he was a previous guest on the, on the show, which I know was a highlight of his career. <laughs> but uh, uh, lastly, he is also the uh, co-author, along with Gail L. Pooley, of Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. Uh, which was published back in August by Cato and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Marion, thank you very, very much for coming back on the podcast. I uh, appreciate it. And thank you for having me. It's a uh, pleasure. Oh, no problem. So uh, what made you guys want to write this book? What was the what was the genesis of it? It seems like because um, the previous book uh, you wrote with Ron Bailey, 10 Global Trends, um, that was – more or less sort of like a coffee table book, right? Uh, you know, a book that's like sort of meant to be out and displayed and, you know, for people to, you know, pick it up and look at it. It had a lot of charts and, you know, cool uh, infographics and all that sort of thing. But it seems like uh, this book is sort of a continuation of that book or maybe more of like a a fleshing out of the, of the 10 Global Trends book of the previous book. Is that what you were uh, going for with this? Uh, I think the genesis of the book uh, are in a number of different places. Uh, mm-hmm. First and foremost, what we did, Gail and I, about four years ago, was to update the famous Ehrlich-Simon wager. Right. Um, as y- y- your, your listeners will be familiar with it, basically, uh, Paul Ehrlich, Stanford University biologist, was claiming that uh, population growth was going to lead to exhaustion of natural resources and therefore famine. Julian Simon, who was an economist at University of Maryland, argued the opposite, and they made a famous bet which, for $1,000, which lasted between 1980 and 1990, uh, as to what would happen to the future of commodity prices, and they all dropped, and mm. consequently, Ehrlich had to pay Simon. So your listeners will be very familiar with the famous uh, bet. Uh, if they are not, they can always look it up on uh, on. Um, um, on, on Wikipedia. But the point is that uh, uh, Ehrlich and Simon measured what is happening to prices of resources uh, in inflation adjusted or real dollars. Mm. And what we wanted to do was to see if we could improve upon the wager by looking at what we call time prices. And in fact, uh, we have found that uh, had they used time prices, Simon would have won by an even greater margin. So time price is basically just how long you have to work in order to um, uh, in order to buy something, be it a pound of beef or a uh, pound of copper. And um, uh, the beauty of time price is that it takes into account not just um, what is happening to the price of the commodity, but also what is happening to wages, because um, productivity growth uh, not only uh, manifests itself. 
in terms of the price of commodities, which is what uh, Ehrlich and Simon were particularly interested in, uh, but also in terms of wage gains uh, by every American and every person in the world uh, on average annually. And so time price really combines the two into one value. It just mm-hmm. divides the nominal price of a commodity by the nominal wage um, at, the, at the beginning of the analysis. And you can repeat that process at the end of the analysis. And uh, what you get is you know, whether people had to work fewer hours in order to earn enough money to buy something. And so basically the part of the purpose of this book, although there are many purposes, but part of the of, of this book is to try to get people to stop thinking in terms of dollars and cents and, uh, you know, um, uh, quantity of uh, resources, but rather start thinking in terms of time um, in terms of time and in terms of knowledge, mm-hmm. because basically every time that a time price goes down, it shows you that knowledge has increased that yeah. allows us to get more value out of finite number of atoms. Gotcha. So uh, before we even uh, get into the book more, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your co-author, uh, Gail Pooley? How did you guys how did you guys meet? How did you decide to to uh, collaborate? Well, Gail looked me up on Twitter when, oh. after I published my original study on uh, Simon Ehrlich Bet, mm-hmm. I, I, I re-estimated the inflation-adjusted prices of the bet back in 2017, and Gail got in touch and said, have you considered adjusting the prices not by inflation, but by uh, income? Um, in other words, make the prices relative to income. And I said, well, uh, let's, let's see what we find out. And we went to it, into it blind. We had no idea what the results were going to be. Um, and in fact, what we found was that whilst the global population increased by 75% uh, between 1980 and 2018, uh, the prices of commodities fell by 75% in terms of time price. So that meant that for every 1% increase in population, time prices of commodities decreased by 1%. Mm-hmm. That obviously whetted our appetites. We, we sure. couldn't believe the numbers. We didn't go into it with any preconceived notions, but when, once we started finding out just this extraordinary level of resource abundance, um, that led to a book which basically looks at resources going back all the way to 1850. So that's how we hooked up on, on this issue. Yeah, great. Okay. So, all right, back to the book itself. Um, so it seems to me the essential argument of the book, basically, and, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but... Uh, but basically that the explosion in the growth of the human population has led to an explosion in material abundance for the, the vast majority of the human population. Yes, with a caveat that uh, the explosion in numbers of people was also accompanied by a tremendous increase in human freedom. Hmm. So a couple of things on this. So, so first of all, on our model, and this is not, this is nothing, nothing that is too controversial. Um, uh, progress, economic progress, uh, but even social progress can only come from the human mind. And so it is humans who have ideas, which then lead to inventions and innovations and uh, um, productivity gains and increased standards of living. So the more people you have, Assuming that the fraction of the population that is interested in inventing and innovating remains the same, the more people you have, the more, the, the greater the number of people who are likely to be inventors and innovators. So that's step number one. You are much more likely to get an interesting world-changing innovation um, out of a population of 8 billion people mm-hmm. in the world today as opposed to 1 billion people 200 years ago. However, at the same time, you need to have an increase in uh, political and economic freedom because uh, uh, it is only people who are able to freely communicate, to freely speak, to freely publish, to invest in the market, to see if their innovation actually works or not. Uh, for that, you need freedom. And mm-hmm. so a perfect example of that would be a country like China sure. or India you know, uh, very populous countries for thousands of years, but desperately poor until very recently. And it is only when uh, when people get freedom that they can start really producing more value for humanity. So superabundance can be really reduced to an equation. Population times freedom equals superabundance. Yeah. So what exactly is 
superabundance. What's what's the difference between regular abundance and superabundance? Excellent question. Superabundance does have a technical uh, technical definition, and that is when the when resource abundance increases at a faster rate than population growth. So in the book we have we have clearly documented, people can see this for themselves, that things are becoming cheaper, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, resources, food, uh, fuel, uh, minerals, metals are becoming cheaper. But, but they, can becoming, they can become more abundant at two different speeds. They can become more abundant at a lower rate than, than, than population. So let's say population is increasing at 5%, but uh, abundance is only increasing at 2%. And mm -hmm. we just call it increased abundance. Clearly, the slice of the pizza is not getting smaller. It is expanding, but at a lower rate than population. When abundance increases at a faster rate than population, so let's say population increases at 5%, but your abundance is increasing at 10%, we call that superabundance. And um, the reason why that's important is because by looking at hundreds of these commodities uh, over a span of 170 years, what we found was that in every single case, in every single data set we used, and we used 18, um, abundance was increasing at a superabundant rate. And that tells us that really, on average, every human being creates more value than they consume. Every human being, on average, is a more of a producer than a consumer, mm -hmm. um, which I think is important to understand in a world where an increasing number of people feel like human beings are a cancer on the planet. We can talk about it more, but oh, one sure. of the reasons, one, one, one other reason why we want to write this book is because there is this growing anti-humanist, anti-natalist um, zeitgeist, uh, and, and that clearly disproved by this book, which shows that human beings, on average, add rather than subtract from, from the world. Right, right. But before we get to that, um, just one more thing on abundance. So why should we measure abundance rather than scarcity? And can you, can you actually really even measure scarcity to begin with? I mean, do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. So in the book, in the book, we argue that it is inappropriate. Now, people can dis disagree on this, but we make an argument that that measuring scarcity is a little bit silly. It is silly because scarcity is infinite. There is always something that I want in right. my life, in my fridge, in my garage, in my house that I cannot have because my desires are infinite, whereas what I can produce and buy with the limited time I'm on Earth is always going to be, well, it's always going to be limited. Sure. Measuring abundance uh, looks at the issue from, from, a different, from a different standpoint. It looks at how much better off we are than people in the past. So it's not projecting into the future, but it's rather looking at the past and seeing how much better off people are today than they were, say, 1950 or mm -hmm. 1980 or 1850. Yeah, okay. And that's much easier to measure. Yeah, gotcha. All right, so moving on back to that, uh, we were just talking about that sort of anti-humanist, anti-natalist thing, but uh, I thought this was cute. Uh, <laughs> basically, one of the, the main uh, villains of the book, I guess, if you want to call him that, or, uh, I mean, he runs through uh, pretty much the whole thing, is uh, Thanos, the <laughs> the uh, the big bad from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, you know, the, uh, for everybody who might not know what I'm talking about, the big purple bad guy in, uh, you know, Infinity War and Endgame and all those other Avengers movies and whatnot. But uh, why, <laughs> why did you decide to include... Uh, or Thanos in the book and make him such a, a prominent uh, uh, character in it. <laughs> partly, I think it's because um, partly I think it's because when we wrote this, when we started writing this book, uh, basically it was the biggest thing out there. Yeah, every sure. uh, like every fifth American or every fourth American saw the movie. It, it was, I think, the highest or the second highest grossing. Um, um, uh, movie in in history. And yeah, I think they both were, and they, they knocked each other off. I think like Infinity War was, and then as soon as Endgame came out, Endgame 
knocked off. Okay. Yeah, anyway, okay, yeah. So they're good. yeah they're both yeah. up there. And yeah, so. and it has this uh, Malthusian undertone to it. Well, not undertone. I mean, it's 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 the key part of the plot. Sure. Is that Thanos thinks like Malthus or Paul Ehrlich. Um, so that was that was something at the back of our minds, and also we realized very quickly that the book was going to have to have some math in it and some and a lot of numbers, right? And so we wanted to sort of how do we humanize this? Mm-hmm. How do we how do we uh, at least attempt to ensure that an ordinary person will buy this book and read it and learn from it. And it is not easy to do things like what we are trying to do by simply uh, using a, a, a language of economists or mathematicians. That mm-hmm. would be silly. It would be that the book would be read by a few hundred people and maybe forgotten. <laughs> but so we are hoping that by by making it sort of more personal, more um, uh, how, how shall I put it? By by introducing this narrative, uh, talking about historical examples, talking about movies, mm-hmm. uh, talking about modern culture, that people who are not particularly interested in, uh, uh, in in data may still take something away from it. In other words, it's it's broadening our audience. I would say that's the key. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and for those of you who have avoided the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and uh, I tip my hat to you. Uh, but, but basically what Thanos is trying to do in the Avengers is he's on this quest. He thinks, he bas- like you said, he's basically Malthusian, or he's Paul, Paul Ehrlich. He thinks that you know uh, population across the universe is going to outstrip the resources of the universe. So he's on this quest to basically find a bunch of rocks or gems. Um, and so once he collects them all, then he can basically uh, wipe out... <laughs> Half of all uh, of all life forms in the planet, or not the planet, uh, in the universe, so that that way uh, they won't be threatening to outstrip the uh, supply of, <laughs> of resources. And it's just kind of funny. You think yeah. like if you have all those things, you could just like sort of invent. You need like snap your fingers and invent something that just like you know makes stuff <laughs> whatever yeah <laughs> I, mean, I mean chapter chapter one uh chapter one starts with quote from Thanos. yeah uh it's a simple calculus the universe is finite its resource is finite if like if life is left unchecked life will cease to exist it needs correction and uh, uh what we are saying in the book is that the world has a finite number of atoms but the mm-hmm. value you can get from those atoms is potentially infinite right yeah, and this is a view. I mean, you know, not every, uh, <laughs> not every radical environmentalist or anything is, you know, obviously supporting uh, genocide, <laughs> whatnot, or or extermination. Yes. yes uh, but yes, but there is a lot yes. of people. But there's a, a a startling tendency with that movement to view uh, human beings not as uh, something valuable or uh, or something that can contribute to uh, solving problems or advancing uh, tech uh, you know technology and innovation or anything like that but they they view humans as just uh, sort of uh, as just mouths to feed right you know just sort of a, a net negative like every new person is a net negative that, um, you know, that we have to curb, uh, you know, the growth of humanity because, um, you know, either because humans are bad or we don't have the resources, we're eventually going to run out and then there's going to be famine and blah, 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 all this stuff. But, um, they, they don't have a very, um, happy view <laughs> of the human race and, uh, our, our potential, uh, to uh, improve things? Well, in the book, we are very careful in distinguishing between uh, well-meaning uh, pro-human environmentalists and extreme environmentalists. And you're absolutely right that uh, not every environmentalist uh, looks at the world in that extreme way. But what we found while writing the book is that whilst a lot of intellectuals have moved away from the sort of purely Malthusian way of seeing humanity. The Malthusian 
um, uh, Malthusian view of the world still remains very widespread amongst ordinary people, ordinary public, exactly the sort of people who would go and watch the Infinity War mm -hmm. or Kingsman or Inferno. And the way that we can show this, the, the way the way that we can show that the book is not really fighting battles from 50 years ago, but is still relevant, is because of opinion polls, which have come out in the last uh, five years or so, uh, where, where people are expressing, well, large sections of the population, not just in the United States, but worldwide, mm -hmm. is, uh, is expressing that sort of view. And also what we found that some of the most important shooters, mass shooters, mass killers in the last, say, decade or so, have been driven by Malthusian concerns. This mm -hmm. is something that I didn't appreciate before I started writing the book. But from Andreas Breivik in Norway to Tarant in uh, New Zealand to the shooter in El Paso, um, in, at the Walmart in El Paso oh, right. yeah, from a couple of years ago, all of them left behind them a, uh, a, 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 a Malthusian manifesto saying that at least part of their motivation was that there are simply too many people in the world and someone somewhere had to do something about it. So even though the, the intellectuals, um, academics, scholars, people like you and I um, may not necessarily share these Malthusian views, I firmly believe, and I, I believe there is evidence to show it, that ordinary uh, uh, public, members of the public, uh, are still wedded to it, which is yeah. dangerous for a variety of reasons. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just something that's just, it's just sort of taken as a given for a lot of people that, oh, the earth is being overpopulated, et cetera, et cetera, when, um, you know, clearly, clearly as the book shows, and if you show it, human progress uh, on the website and everywhere, you know, and a lot of people talk about that, that's actually not, you know, the case. That we're actually really going to have uh, more of a problem with uh, underpopulation or population decline um, uh, in the future. And I know Elon Musk has been—he's uh, been one of those people that's been very uh, vocal about that, and he's <laughs> also seemingly going about uh, trying to single-handedly uh, uh, revert that. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you'll hear it. I mean, I was just—I was watching an episode of. Bill Maher's show a few weeks ago, and he just, you know, just casually was like, oh, yeah, the, you know, the earth is, you know, overpopulated and. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. You yes. know, and just like, yeah, I mean, it's just I mean, like, like I said, like you said, it's just sort of taken as a given, but it's not really the, you know, the decline of population coming up in the next century uh, is going to be a bigger problem just because you I mean, you you cannot have con uh, continued economic growth. Uh, or I mean, I guess you can, but you can't have as much of it when you have uh, so much of a decline in human capital. Well, that's right. So there are ways that you can compensate for. Uh, well, first of all, let's establish some facts. So uh, global population will probably peak around 2060 at 9 billion and then start declining. And so at the end of this century, we are going to have as many people in the world as we currently have, which is to say about 8 billion. Um, um, and um, th then, then we don't know, but it could continue to decline. The point is, as you said, that there might be less economic growth. You can compensate for that a little bit by bringing more people into the free global economy. So right now, large chunks of the world are still not plugged into the global economy uh, in, in a proper fashion. Um, such as, for example, the entire sub-Saharan African continent mm -hmm. of 1.4 billion people. And even in other places like China, people are having less freedom than they used to. So you could compensate for that uh, declining population by increasing human freedom. But let's assume that liberal democracy isn't going anywhere. In mm -hmm. fact, it's going to start shrinking and fewer people are going to have freedom of speech and uh, freedom of participation in the market, etc. Then, of course, the problem of having too few brains freely thinking in the world is going to be exacerbated, which is going to have profound effects on long-term economic growth, but also on uh, all sorts of commitments that our governments have made sure. to, say, for example, future Safety generations safety net programs, uh, debt, and so forth. Right. Yeah. Um, this, 
apocalyptic thinking or this this view that so many people have that you know oh overpopulation's a problem uh you know the world's just getting worse uh uh you know the the environment's being degraded etc 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 uh it seems that that mode of thinking uh is actually sort of reassuring for some people or or in some ways comforting and you talk a little bit about this in the book why why do people find that sort of that mode of thought uh, so appealing? Um, because it confirms that the views they hold ab- uh, about the world are solid, are sound. So let me backtrack a little bit. So uh, religion has been around for a very long time, um, and uh, for, for good and evil, uh, religion has been for a very long time, uh, and uh, and and. And it plays a very important role in people's lives by giving them meaning, a structure, uh, something to believe in. And that's very important. This sense of transcendence is very important for a species that can imagine their own death, right? No other species out there understands that life is finite, that it will come to an end. Mm -hmm. And so whether you believe in traditional religion or uh, new forms of religions, uh, then... uh, um, uh, you know what, what you are aiming for is to 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 have that sense of the transcendental that that in your life you are committed to um, some some more uh, how shall I put this you're committed to more than just living like an organism on earth and dying right. you, you you want to have a a story of transcendent uh, of the transcendent you you sure. want to make sure that you are participating in some sort of a heroic uh, or a meaningful uh, uh, game, right? And um, and and so we have these visions of what what the world is like, our hierarchy of values. And uh, for the religious people, for example, if you have a uh, uh, terrible plague or if you have a uh, terrible environmental disaster, it may reaffirm that their belief in the second coming is correct. Right. If the world is is imploding, uh, then then that just confirms some sort of a biblical uh, passage in which uh, in which uh, this was prophesied, and uh, you know uh, it reaffirms that what they are believing is right. Now this works for traditional uh, for for people who don't believe in traditional religion, mm-hmm. people who uh, maybe 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 may have their values and their ideas rooted in extreme environmentalism is that if you, again, see a plague or a tsunami or, um, or, or, or something like that, a hurricane, um, it con- a hurricane mm. it confirms that uh, their approach to, th- th- that their values are basically correct. My belief that capitalism is evil, industrialization is horrible, everything is going to come to a crashing end as, as the world implodes due to um, overuse of resources and things like that, uh, it, 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 is, it is actually comforting to them because they know that the values they hold are valid. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that was a very long answer. No, 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 that's fine. That's question. great. That's great. No, but I, yeah, and uh, just more on that. Um, you know, people, that, that mode of thinking, it's just I, like, I know it's reassuring for some and reinforces the values, but it's just simply. Uh, it just simply isn't true. I mean, as as you show in the book, there's, and you showed in the other book too, in uh, you know, ten global trends, that there, there's no shortage of positive trends in the world today. I mean, so many different me- metrics. Uh, you know, incomes are up uh, worldwide, pretty much. Uh, life expectancy is up. Food supply is up. Literacy rates are up. You know, homicide rates are down inequality is down uh deaths you know caused by natural disasters or by weather you know extreme weather by uh cold snaps or heat waves or something like that those are all down and continuing to decline <clears throat> and you know it, and it's not there's there's just so many different metrics but think you know things really are um you know contra to what you know many people believe like things <laughs> things are are really never been better and are pretty great and are likely to continue, um, you know, likely to continue on that path. 
well, in the long run. In right? the long run, uh, yes, yeah. Over the, over the last yeah, there might be years, you know blips course, and we have seen yeah. yeah we we have seen a lot of reverses, and that of course uh, you know is is just perfect for people who have this declinist apocalyptic view of the world because. Mm-hmm. What it tells them, it's like you, you remember Marxists from the old days. Whenever there would be some sort of a, a, a recession in the West, they would say, ah, finally, capitalism is in its last throes. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is the, the, the dying cries of capitalism and that yeah. sort of thing. Um, and, and, and for many people, um, of course, the plague, the, the, the COVID-19 and the subsequent economic problems uh, would have played that kind of a reassuring, reassuring um, 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 event, uh, basically confirming that uh, what is happening in the world is fundamentally in line with their declinist viewpoint, which yeah. is why, for example, during the COVID pandemic, uh, uh, as we started coming out of the COVID pandemic, a lot of people wrote some absolutely horrific things on Twitter and also in newspapers about how, um, you know, COVID was uh, the, you know, the, the, the solution to our problems because it would cull humanity, reduce our carbon footprint and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. They, they saw it as, 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 as essentially as, a, uh, as an act of God um, to... Uh, well, um, correct us from our yeah. correct yeah. us to, from to, our exploitive, yeah. you know, capitalist yeah. tendencies. Yeah, yeah, life, life needs correcting. Yeah, right, yeah. right, yeah, yeah. But it's funny you you, you mentioned the Marxist, but that st- sort of talk still comes around. I mean, you you know, you hear that phrase "late stage capitalism" all the time, which assumes yes. that like you know that we're we're this close to getting away from capitalism, or that you know this is the the end stage of capitalism. You know, before we advance to some more uh, 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 enlightened uh, economic system, you know. Yeah, yes. But, yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Late stage capitalism. That's exactly what I was looking for, but I yeah. couldn't come up with a phrase. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, so sp- speaking of more on the Malthusians and everything, have have has there been any? Has Malthusianism been put into practice anywhere uh, by government policy? Has there been any states that have uh, have done or have, uh, made uh, made policy on Malthusian uh, grounds? Yes, certainly. Uh, the 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 one ch- one child policy in China between 1978 and 2015 uh, prevented the births of about 400 million uh, Chinese. Um, so in the book, we try to estimate how much more prosperous the world would be if the Chinese have not prevented 400 million births. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and also in India, um, tens of thousands of people uh, have been sterilized or, um, um, or, or, or uh, babies have been aborted under what was called the Indian emergency when the constitution was uh, was um, uh, was suppressed for a couple of years uh, in the 1970s. Um, at any rate, uh, it, it was obviously horrific, a tremendous amount of um, uh, human suffering and rights abuses uh, has been committed by China specifically and to a much lesser extent in, uh, in India. And of course, it proved to be, like you would expect from a communist regime, a mm-hmm. spectacular shot in the foot uh, of, of the Chinese state because they have uh, completely misaligned their uh, gender ratio. Uh, at its height, you had 120 boys per every 100 women, which means that uh, some 20% of the Chinese men couldn't find a wife, um, which is a huge problem uh, for a variety of reasons, including uh, for reasons of uh, political stability, because men without uh, wives and with no prospects uh, tend to turn to crime. Uh, But it also destroyed the Chinese uh, pyramid, population pyramid. They have a very imbalanced pyramid whereby a lot of people are going to be uh, very old, um, uh, you know, coming out of the markets, out of the labor market, and they cannot be replaced, uh, let alone grown by by additional Chinese uh, to to keep the economic growth uh, and to keep the economy running. 
So, so yes, uh, those things have happened. Yeah. Um, speaking of the Malthusians, again, still, I'm <clears throat> glad you spent so much time on Julian Simon and Paul Ehrlich. Uh, for people who might not know, I mean, Paul Ehrlich um, is, I mean, he's still alive. He's, you know, in his 90s, I think now, maybe 89, 90, something like that. He's been making these predictions of, um, these doomsday predictions about, uh, uh, these Malthusian predictions for basically the last 50 years that not have become true. And he was a very, uh, famous and well-respected, uh, commentator on these sort of things. I mean, you know, he would be invited on the tonight show and to talk about this sort of stuff, you know, the population bomb, his book, when that came out was, a uh, 1968, I believe that was a massive, massive, uh, big seller. And he still, um, and he still comments on this stuff to this day. And people sort of still take him seriously, even though he's been, uh, like egregiously wrong <laughs> on practically everything. I remember I, I was writing an op-ed a few years ago about something and I came across, uh, uh, a quote or a prediction he made about England or the United Kingdom, uh, basically said that, you know, by the year 2000, uh, the the population in England will be about half of what it was whenever he wrote the prediction. And <laughs> I looked and I was like, well, it's actually about double uh, that almost now. <laughs> but um, he also he also predicted that by the year 2000, England would be underwater. Right, right. That's true. That was right. That was the other yeah. part of it would be underwater. Yeah. yeah. So he was, <laughs> as you say in the book, uh, he was basically the Thanos of his day. Uh, but that that famous. Uh, wager you mentioned he made with Julian Simon um, in 1990 about the commodities. So uh, that, or basically ran from 1980 to 1990. So does does that does that bet still work in Simon's favor even like from 1990 to today, even when you uh, subject it to your uh, your time price analysis? So is oh, yeah. is, is, is um, Simon still winning? Yeah, basically. Oh yes, yeah. yes he is. Um, we we wrote also a separate paper on that uh, called Luck or Insight, which is which can be gotten online. But uh, basically, in the book, we we look at the Simon Ehrlich wager between 1980 and 1990. Then we look at it from 1980 to 2018, and then we take it back all the way to 1960. And basically, what we are just trying to do is to is to look at, you know, at different time periods and see would it would this work if it was brought up to today? Would it work if it was taken back in time? And in every case, Simon wins. Um, and and especially when it comes to time prices, because as I said. Uh, time prices don't just take into account inflation adjusted dollars. They don't measure things in inflation adjusted mm-hmm. dollars. They measure, uh, measure abundance of commodities relative to income. And because incomes tend to grow at a faster rate than, uh, than, than, uh, than, than, than inflation because of productivity gains, um, you know, the, 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 the amount of time that we have to spend in order to buy basic, basic stuff is, is just constantly falling. So yes, uh, he would uh, Simon would have won by even bigger margins once you take into account time prices. Great, cool. All right, well, so um, can can superabundance endure? You know, is it is it here to stay? Superabundance? Can we? Is it something we can count on going forward? So in the book, we obviously don't look at all the potential dangers to the planet. Um, all sorts of things could happen which are out of our control, you know, we could have a horrible pathogen which wipes out half of humanity or we could have a nuclear war or an asteroid. There are all sorts of reasons why superabundance might not continue. I think that the ultimate goal of of our book is less ambitious. It's basically, you know, nobody nobody can guarantee that the world is going to grow more prosperous, healthier, greener, etc. What we can say, uh, and what I hope that we showed in the book, is that there are no physical limits to our ability to produce more wealth out of finite number of atoms that we have on the planet. Uh, That superabundance can continue so long as the uh, social, political, economic uh, conditions for it continue. And among them, uh, the, the most important one is that people should have as many children as they want. In other words, they shouldn't listen to the apocalypse 
scientists out there who are saying that uh, every additional human being is a cancer on the planet. Mm. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, you know, people will have as many babies as they want. Uh, we are not there to, to bring humanity into some sort of a handmade maiden's tale or something like that. We don't want to force anybody to have. But to the extent that human beings are influenced by the zeitgeist, by intellectuals telling them that humans are bad for the planet, then they should, mm -hmm. they should look at the data. Uh, the second thing is... Uh, the, the values of the Enlightenment, chief of which is freedom of speech, uh, need to be preserved. Um, if human beings lose that right, if they cannot think, speak, publish, uh, if they cannot invest in the market, um, then, uh, then of course, superabundance can be threatened. And lastly, it's the regulation of the marketplace. Um, the only way that you can distinguish between a valuable uh, innovation and valueless uh, innovation or less valuable innovation uh, is in the marketplace. Um, communist economies stagnated or uh, grew at a slow pace precisely because they couldn't tell um, what needed to be produced and what didn't have to be produced. They didn't have the, the, the price system telling them we need more of X and less of Y. And uh, if if capitalism uh, understood as the market process of discovery and especially the price signal is undermined through government regulation, uh, then, of course, you could have a situation where um, where superabundance stops. And mm -hmm. I think a perfect example would be of that, of what is happening in Europe right now. Um, yes, uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine uh, contributed to creating the crisis, but the crisis would not be as bad, perhaps not at all if uh, Europeans haven't made some very stupid decisions in terms of their energy production over the last 20 years or so. Yeah, Greta, uh, Greta Thunberg's more to blame for that than Putin at this point. Uh, and, and yeah, and, and, and so the, um, uh, you know, again, they, they produce too much of something, mm -hmm. meaning uh, of the green energy, and too little of something, um, the, uh, the natural gas, for example, yeah. or, or oil, um, coal, n nuclear, especially nuclear. And so they are where they are uh, because they uh, didn't allow market to function and uh, they have to suffer the consequences. Yeah. <clears throat> it was nice to see her uh, belatedly reverse herself on nuclear things, uh, <laughs> you know, that the nuclear plants can save. But, but yeah, back to your point about, uh, you know, people you know, not to worry about having kids and all that sort of thing. I know that that is uh, that people saying that they're not having children because of environmental concerns, that's sort of on that's been on the rise lately. And, you know, whether people tell that to a pollster or a journalist or something like I, I guess you have to take uh, th their statement at face value. But it seems to me that a lot of that is just the people who didn't want to have kids anyway are just using uh, the environment as as an excuse, you know, so that they can look, you know, so they can look altruistic instead of selfish, you know, like, you know, instead of saying like, oh, I don't want kids because like, you know, it's going to cramp my style or I'm not going to be able to like do what I want or blah, 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 blah. They're just like, oh, no, I'm not having kids because it's bad for, you know, bad for the earth, that sort of thing. I think that... Um, I think that has something to do with it, but like I said, you have to take people at their word. But I, I don't know. It's you have to. Little... You have to. But <laughs> but 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 I wouldn't dismiss it. I wouldn't dismiss environmental concerns completely. Uh, in part. Oh, I'm sure there's some true stuff. believers. Yeah. No. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. But but the 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 um, the evidence from the opinion polls is corroborated by secondary evidence, such as, for example, the rise in eco anxiety. Uh, mm. That is a real phenomenon. Uh, children, their parents are uh, going to see medical professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, because they believe the, the, the world is about to end. And that's, that's something that there is definitely a spike in uh, uh, ecology-driven anxiety in rich countries, which we also document. And that, that would confirm that at least some of them are true believers. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good point. All right. Well, uh, we've already... Yeah, we've already gone about 45 minutes, which is as long as I said I'd keep you. So, um, so you might have answered this uh, a couple of questions ago when you were talking about superabundance, but um, you know, uh, I basically ask it everybody. You know, I've asked you before for the other book, but um, so basically, yeah, what's you know, what would you like, or what's the one thing you'd want the uh, a reader from taking away having read this book? 
Um, I think it would be that it is true that the world has only finite number of atoms on it, finite number of, res of finite number of atoms, right? But what we do with them, the, the, the marvelous things that we can create of those, of those atoms are infinite. Think about something as a grain of sand. It's been on Earth for billions of years, and then about, about three and a half thousand years ago, maybe four and a half thousand years ago, somebody figured out that by melting sand at high temperatures, you could get glass out of it. And so people started producing glass beads, and then later glass jars, and then later windows. And with every step of the way, the amount of value for human well-being out of that grain of sand increased. And today, we are using sand in order to make glass, in order to turn it into fiber optic cables, which power civilization, which allow us to send huge amounts of information across continents. And that shows you this progression of value creation from something as simple as a grain of sand tells you that while, while the number of atoms on Earth are finite, the value that we can get from them is infinite. All right. Well... Three cheers for sand. Um, anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, all right, before we go, um, very well put. So anything else you uh, want to plug, anything you want to mention before we uh, before we log if, off? You want to uh, talk about humanprogress.org and, you know, all if, the, the, the cool stuff you guys are doing there? Well, my broader work is obviously humanprogress.org. Uh, we are going to be launching a brand new looking website in December of this year. So we are looking forward to that. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, you know, I'm obviously spending a lot of time promoting this new book. And uh, anybody who is interested in it, please go to superabundance.com. You can read more about, you can read the introduction, you can uh, read about our methodology. You can find all the different buying options in case you want to buy the book. Um, you know, population of the world is going to reach 8 billion on November 15th. So uh, if there are people in your world who are skeptical, who are doomsayers, um, go ahead, visit superabundance.com, buy a copy, give it to your friends, your family, your, your kids, and hopefully they will be less gloomy uh, than they currently are. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, it's a fantastic book. Uh, there's a uh, foreword by George Gilder at uh, the beginning, and uh, you guys got a lot of uh, uh, great praise here from many many different people, many you know Nobel Prize winning economists and people you know uh, public intellectuals that you know people know like Steven Pinker and Jordan Peterson, Matt Ridley, uh, God, who else? You know George Will, uh, Deidre McCloskey. Uh, Johann Norberg, Michael Schellenberger, all kinds of uh, people I've seen uh, praise the book, and it is—it's really, uh, really fantastic. I was—I was, I was uh, as a history major, I was a bit unprepared for uh, the section two of the book, where, where all the math, <laughs> all the math is, uh, you know. So my uh, my liberal arts uh, uh, math courses in college were, you know, I had to brush up on that a little bit but uh but no it's really really well done uh tons and tons of great information in there and it's presented in a very great way there's lots of uh uh charts and and graphs and uh visual cues cues and uh different little uh uh subtopics too in in the little boxes that are you know explain more uh what's going on in the main text and uh it's just a really really uh, really, really, really well done book, and I highly, highly recommend it for uh, everybody out there, especially for the people in your lives who might be a little bit on the uh, doom and gloom side when it comes to the earth and humanity and all that stuff. So, again, the name of the book is Superabundance, the Story of Population Growth, Innovation, and Human Flourishing on an Infinitely Bountiful Planet. And the author, who was uh, my guest today, Marion L. Tupi, so, uh, Marianne, thank you very, very much for coming back on to discuss this book with me. Uh, really appreciate it. Really, really enjoyed the book. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, good luck. Thank Th you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. And that's uh, 
T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we do have our Twitter account for the uh, web uh, bleh, for the website for the podcast. Uh, you can reach out to us there too if you have any questions, comments, or anything like that. Uh, our our uh, what is our handle? Our handle is at illbooks at i l l books. So make sure you check that out. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye bye. If I should suddenly start to sing Or stand on my head or anything Don't think that I've lost my senses It's just that my happiness finally commences The long, long ages of dull despair Are turning into thin air it seems that suddenly I've become the happiest girl alive. Things are looking up. I've been looking the landscape over, and it's covered with four-leaf clover. Oh, things are looking up since love looked up at me. Bitter was my cup, but no more will I be the mourner, for I've certainly turned the corner. Oh, things are looking up since love looked up at me. See the sunbeams, everyone beams. Just because of you Love's in session And my depression Is unmistakably through Things are looking up It's a great little world we live in Oh, I'm happy as a pup Since love looked up at me Is unmistakably through Things are looking up It's a great little world we live in Oh, I'm happy